I'm Alex Perrottet with the third edition of Awkward Conversations, a series looking at who we are and how we talk to each other about identity, race, and the complex and intertwined history of the peoples of Aotearoa. I'm here in front of an audience in the distinctive Gisborne Bar and Music venue, Smash Palace. Now, why Gisborne? It's the centre of the Tuia 250 Kituranga commemoration of the first contact between Europeans in the shape of James Cook and Māori. 250 years after that face-to-face meeting, I'm here face-to-face with a live audience and two special guests to discuss issues we often shy away from. Please welcome Dr Jill Crisp and Karen Johansson. Dr Jill, born and educated in Tarawhiti, worked in Fiji for volunteer service abroad and then came back uh, established the Totoko Trust and, uh, and of course worked on the New Zealand Human Rights Commission, has a PhD in social science from Victoria University of Wellington. Uh, Karen, human rights uh, commissioner as well, but spent 37 years as, as a teacher and a, and a principal uh, and, uh, and of course worked on Treaty of Waitangi and Indigenous issues. Now, um, one point of awkwardness uh, among maybe a few, uh, Jill is a descendant of um, a prominent Tarawhiti settler family and the great granddaughter of the former Gisborne Harbour Master, who's more or less, I think we can say, responsible for destroying the iconic rock, Titoka Otayo. Karen, of course, a Ronga Whakata woman. Uh, and if we can start with you, Karen, um, take us through one significant awkward conversation that you may have had. Jill was the one who nominated that this should be the one we talk about. She's the senior partner. Um, <laughs> uh, a book was published in, in Gisborne, which is telling the story of Gisborne, and it was launched a few years ago. And as I sat through the launch and, and people were talking about the content of it and I looked at the content of it, I realised that there was very little about who I was in it. I didn't recognise most of the people in it because mostly it was a Pākehā history. And it was a lot about the Crisp family and theirs, pioneer settlers, and quite rightly so. And on the way home, Jill noticed that I was very quiet. I was totally excited because I was there in the pages I was reflected and I had no idea why Karen um, was not with me in this and we were driving along <sighs> Riverside Road and we got halfway along and I thought, why are you so quiet? And we suddenly realised that our experience of this book, of this history, was entirely different. Um, and I think for me the aha moment there was, I had assumed that we would come to that experience from the same space. We'd been living together by then for five, six, seven, eight years and negotiated our space in terms of who we were multiple times, but I didn't see this one coming. Um, And that opened, I think, for us uh, another whole set of ways of looking at what our our stories are and then what do we do with that. I think it it was an invisibility... Well, uh, you speak for you. It was a lack of the stories. And that's why we're here today, I think, because the whole Tuia 250 <coughs> encounter experience, I hope, is going to be telling our stories, of stories of Tūranganui Akiwa. And I haven't got all the stories. My, actually, my life is full of silences about the history. And I'm not just a Rungafukata woman, I'm descended from a Pākehā settler as well. In 1813, a woman called Māda Pani was born at Muriwai, and... When she was in her early 20s, there was discussion 
that um, a war party would go up north by Waka, and she demanded that she should go with that war party. That permission was denied. The, the Waka set out next morning and half a mile out to sea, uh, as the, uh, the stories in the newspaper at the time go, the native, uh, the native sailors discovered Madapani in the Waka, hiding there. So they threw her overboard. And because she was a very strong swimmer, uh, she swam back to shore. And, and there are many stories of how intrepid she was. Uh, that woman was my great-great-grandmother. Um, she went on to marry Thomas Halbert, the Pākehā settler, and she gave birth to my great-grandfather, Thomas Matiwai Halbert, who married Matihaire Brown, who was the daughter of uh, Wee Brown, who was a, a Mahaki Rangatira at the time. About the time they were born, or when they were one or two years of age, the siege of Wairangihika um, took place, and that had cataclysmic results. The siege of the Pa involved a lot of people being killed and wounded. Uh, the outcome of that was the confiscation of 1.2 million acres of land in Tūranga. I have no idea what happened to my nanny's uh, family. I don't know what happened to her as an infant, but I think when she married Thomas Matiwai Halbert, I think they made a decision that the only way they were going to survive this was to become as Pākehā as possible. And so their children were sent to Melbourne Conservatory of Music. They lived a very Pākehā lifestyle. They had the resources to be able to do this. Thomas Halbert um, drove around in a very beautiful car. He dressed very nattily. They were busy in Anglican church affairs. Um, they were very involved in, in World War I, uh, looking after the boys and making decisions about the boys. Um, and when my grandfather came home from World War I, having survived Gallipoli and everything else, he came home uh, with an English bride, and they had my mother, Irene. And she was raised to say, I'm a little English girl. But all her life, I knew that there was a sense of not being really anchored. <laughs> and there were so many silences. Um, and then when I came along, I kept asking questions. Why can't I find out about these stories? Why don't we visit Auntie so-and-so or Nanny so-and-so? Why, why don't we? Um, my kuru, what's that language you're speaking in Gladstone Road when I'm with him in town? Never mind, darling, don't you worry about that. Uh, and so here I am with Pahia Settler and Rungwhakata uh, Mahaki Tamanuhiri entwined, and I, I feel on the edge, really. I've been trying to find that place myself most of my adult life. Um, it's probably enough about that story, but the effects that it's had on my, that's a, the decisions I've made as an adult and the work I have done um, have been profound. It is interesting hearing Karen's story because the parallel story, I mean, our story is planted very much here in Tūranga, in, in, in Gisborne. Um, the first of my ancestors that came to this country came to Tūranga was my great-great-grandfather Thomas Crisp, who arrived here after coming in and out of, of Tūranga in, in 1874. So the parallel story for Karen and for me is that he 
came in here to live to live in this place. He became harbour master. Um, he was instigative in beginning the kind of Parkour commercial space that Gisborne was, the creating the borough of Gisborne. Um, he, at his, I mean, I thank him for, for coming because otherwise I wouldn't be here. And, and, and for me, this place is not only you've got ancestors that way, but my grandchildren's whenua, my grandchildren's placentas are planted in this place. Really important to me. However, for him, economic development meant um, trading. There was trading happening. Tangata whenua were trading all over the place. He, he, he didn't bring that in, but there was increasing number of people who wanted to trade the resources that were here, bigger and bigger ships. And he saw that the harbour needed to be extended in order that these ships didn't continue to breach and the insurance companies get well, get brassed off for paying out on, on wrecked ships. So a whole series over a couple of, couple of events, a whole series of rocks were blown up, including the Tokua Taio, which, as I learn, is an incredibly important symbol for this place. It's where Cook and Karen's Fanonga met each other, and the deaths happened on that place. It's where, I mean, I had, I had the absolute privilege to talk with people here who, to, to try and listen about the other story about Te Tokua Taio. So... My stories have come from, from what Anne Salmon calls the ship perspective. You know, the stories of the ships. Cook's stories have been the ones, uh, my, my great-great-grandfather's stories have been the ones that have been written and told and valued and believed. To be able to begin to listen to the stories from people for whom that was a body blast when that rock was blown up and the impact on people is something that's quite, um, it's, it's hugely impactful. And I think something that me as Pākehā need to think about, what do I do with that? Not to wallow in it, not to, it, it, it's happened. But, but what does that say to me now in relation to what decisions I make, what I do in this place? I've come home to Tūranga, I've come home to this region um, after being away for a lot of years, but this was always home. I now want to know how best to support this place. This place that's got street names called um, Ormond and Stout and um, Carnarvon and Gladstone and Disraeli and Roebuck and, you know, language is really important and the names of the commercial centre of this place are all Parkhead names, probably all men as well. Um, So what does it mean then for me coming home? Um, being part of an organisation or an agency right now that's needing to negotiate how it extends the economic branch of our port against what impact that has and what that means to people who are here, for whom there are many, many other realities. So, That's a really interesting juncture to talk about right now because that's an issue that's happening right now. You were talking about the extension of the wharf and... And um, so, I mean, these conversations have been designed as a kind of a kitchen table conversation, but I imagine between both of you, there's been plenty of kitchen table Mm. conversations about this issue. Mm. I said to talk Ataya whether or not it's it's actually relocated and a a po is put on it so that we can know exactly where it is. That's important, but I think it's important for us to remember that it's a a symbol uh, for us 
all of our responsibility to the whenua, to, to everyone, every one of us. And symbolically, it is about who we are and what our responsibilities are uh, to one another, um, both sides of, of the treaty partnership. And um, when I was working for the Human Rights Commission as Indigenous Rights Commissioner, my work was about trying, well, legally we had a responsibility to, to educate about the treaty. And um, so we used the Declaration for the Rights of Indigenous People to, which is in plain language, to unpack those words of 1840, which we don't really understand the, the, the practical um, uh, meanings of. And, uh, and so we used to talk about, um, about we borrowed the words of uh, Bishop Manuhuya Bennett that treaty is promise of two peoples to take good care of each other. It's actually interesting that two peoples notion. I think about um, Moana Jackson when he talks about how Tetiriti relates to the multiple dimensions of people that, multiple ethnicities, multiple groups. When he talks about the hand and that your thumb is tangata whenua and that your fingers are the different um, Pacifica, Asian, European groups that come in. You cut off the thumb and it doesn't work. But everything relates to that thumb. And so trying to uh, hear what Bishop um, Bennett said, trying to understand what that means now. Um, I mean, we've got communities in, in Turanga here that um, have got m multiple dimensions, diversities to them. This edition of Awkward Conversations features two speakers well qualified to discuss how we define ourselves and think of others, Dr Jill Crisp and Karen Johansson. We're talking in front of an audience at Smash Palace in Gisborne at an event created through partnership with the Taha Trust as part of the Tuia 250 Kituranga event, which marks the 250th anniversary of the first contact between Europeans and Māori. I'm Alex Perrottet in the chair for this RNZ recording. Is that conversation going in the right direction about this issue with the wharf? Is, it, is, it, is, it, is there a risk that perhaps this becomes another ihumatao uh, type scenario if we don't get it right now? There's always a risk. We've got plenty of precedents for no, the right people not being talked with, for decisions being made. Uh, one of the, the, the premises of the Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples is don't make decisions about me without me. Mm. No. That's where the relationships fall down and that's where calamitous um, consequences occur that take generations to do something about. <clears throat> and that's not well understood by the influences and people in power. Anyway, most places in, the, in, in New Zealand, I think, but if we're talking about Tūranga, particularly in Tūranga. There's an issue too when you look actually at who are making those decisions for us in this region, mm. who, whose voices are... Um, as a social scientist, I look at the systems and the structures that enable some voices to be heard more than other voices. And so back to um, our, our current situation here, who is making those decisions? Is it just a transactional thing? Is it a relationship thing? How can I have a relationship with Karen if I don't know who she is? How can we decide to go forward with something unless we understand and value. So it, for me, it's not just about telling stories, actually. That has to happen, but it's about how much value we place on those stories. I remember I was primary teaching up the coast, um, Te Puya, and actually at Whatatutu, way back in my early career. 
And I found myself getting into enormous trouble with the Ministry of Education because I refused to do the then intelligence tests that had a set of questions that kids had to respond to um, and they got it right if they responded in a particular kind of cultural way. And so intelligence was measured really on, on, on where cultural, you sat in cultural that context, premises. Yeah. on that yeah. cultural premise. Mm. And How and much has changed with that? Oh, you're the educationalist, Karen. <laughs> <laughs> Things have changed. I, I could tell an aha story about how much has changed. When I was principal of Gisborne Girls High School, we had our 50th anniversary, and 500 or so, 600 um, women responded, and most of them were of my generation. We had this uh, huge poorheady, and then... Everybody came into the tent where there were to be cocktails and talk and everything else, but I wanted to meet them. And as I was wearing the whānau kahukui, and as I was going in, these women of my generation were fingering, saying, oh, this is nice. Where'd you get this? That's lovely. Um, and then so I went up on the stage, and it was I started my mihi, and I realised that the, my generation was starting to talk with one another. Senior students were looking aghast and the noise got louder and louder. I finished by me. Two sentences into my first paragraph, I said, I surrender. I give up. I've lost them. No. And a huge embarrassment from everybody else. But we went on um, cocktailing and talking and this woman came up to me and she'd become extremely wealthy digging up coal in Australia and she planted herself in front of me I was going to give the school a whole lot of money, but I don't recognise this as my school any longer. And that was an aha moment for me. I said, I'm thrilled, actually, that you don't recognise the school as being yours any longer. Um, because that was 50 years ago, and I hope that things have changed. And that's how I talked with the staff and with the school uh, when we were back um, in business on next Monday morning. We've made huge changes. We are making a difference. We haven't finished, but we're making a difference. Um, and, and today, so many of, of the graduates are doing brilliant things. I was going to say... Itiao Māori and, and Pākehā. Mm, because yeah. that very, very dis descriptive story, it tells it from the negative perspective of the, I guess, disenfranchised Pākehā after that, that many years. But... But it, and you say it's a great thing that it, there was change. And so tell us about some of those positive results of the education that has been provided here. One example, I'm involved with setting up a, um, a new school in, in Gisborne, right in the heart of the city, called Turanga Tangatarite. And it's the first iwi um, state integrated school. And it's year 9 to 11, uh, 56 uh, young people. And the only way they can get into that kura, it's English medium, only way they can get into that kura is by committing themselves and the whānau committing themselves to the tikanga of Turanga Nuiākiwa. So here's an opportunity for that to be the platform, the, the, the ways of looking at the world through a Turanga Nuiākiwa lens. Still learning the science and technology and maths, and, um, that's, that's also so important. But this is an opportunity for us to work with our um, rangatahi uh, in a different way, 
um, connecting with the identity that we know is so important. Um, and that that's a real joy for me. It's, I'm hugely busy, but it's a real joy to be involved in that. I still <coughs> think, from my perspective, um, coming working with the Human Rights Commission and managing the Right to Education project for, for the country, there are still the results that what was happening for um, Māori kids in that system across the country is still not an equitable process, still not an equitable system. So whilst I think, and I think what Karen's doing with um, Tūranga Tangatarite is, is and, and, and the team she's working with is phenomenal, there are other wonderful initiatives happening in this region and elsewhere, but mm-hmm. there needs <coughs> to be a shift, I think, at... At, at a structural shift at the whole nat- national level. Um, we can't rely on brilliant people to be popping up. I mean, I, d- I don't also think that, na- that, that the national structure needs to determine what happens locally. You know, there's nothing about us without us. Community-led and community-up is critical, but there needs to be the space and the room and the, the, the legislation, the policies, the, the resource to support that happening. And I still don't think it's there. I mean, one of the things for me as a, as, a, as a gay woman and working in gender identity work was really good to see that the ministry has now got a third category around gender identity, male, female and diverse. Um, and so I think there are some areas where the ministry is prepared to be, um, to be, to be forward and courageous, but it has to happen throughout. Um, and I... I Judge Joe Williams talked about, who said partnership will never happen, or that principle of partnership will never happen until central government, every single institution in this country, takes Māori into the middle, into the centre, uh, and only then will that othering stop and we see an end to the senior partner, junior partner situation mm. that we have. Now. And actually, it's not a deficit model either, is it? A, a guy, a man I knew who went away to England for about 15 years, came back in the early. 20, 2010 or something and in that time, that 15 years he was away, he said New Zealanders speak English differently, what's happened and my understanding that's happened is, is because of Dame Nader Glavich saying kia ora in the 80s because of your colleague Guy on um, Rabbiting on and Te Reo on Radio New Zealand that, that actually we, non-Māori speakers are benefiting from a phenomenal um, language that we can access and that can impact on us, that actually is changing even the way we speak English. And if you look at that as symbolically, what is it that is we, we need to learn and be enriched by? So it's not just a deficit thing of making things equal, it's actually we've got such an opportunity in this country to be enriched and to learn. Karen, your new school, you're getting that buy-in from Fano that they have to sign up. Um, how crucial is that when you're teaching children just to make sure that the family are on, bo- on board with exactly what you're trying to pass on in the classroom? Otherwise, it's sort of out th- in one year, out the other yeah. once they get home. You, you, you can't operate without the, entire, the buy-in of the entire community. Defano in, in this area have that freedom, that encouragement to explore and to live their own culture enough. Otherwise, we have this um, great enthusiasm from Pakia to, to take on. I'm, I'm going to interrupt you yes. there, um, if I may. Um, there's also a real danger in Pakia using that to maintain their dominant position. I mean, I remember marching behind Dame Fina Cooper 
in the 70s and this gorgeous young Ngātamatoa man came up to me and his language was really colourful and said it's because of you we're in this situation. So as Pākehā, what that made me do is think, I'm not here to bang on about things Māori. What I'm here to do, what I think I need to do is to try and work with other Pākehā, others, to to see what we can do collectively to enable Māori to live as Māori. Not to enable, not to do it for them, not not to... but just to back off probably sometimes. So Karen, you've been a teacher, a principal for, for a long time and a time enough to see change. Mm, what I observe are more and more kura kaupapa Māori mm. um, being set up and um, local people taking charge and doing the stuff that should have been done a long time ago in partnership. You know, that um, so we have more and more kura kaupapa Māori. We have a huge lack of teachers who are able to teach i te reo, uh, senior physics, senior maths, that, that's, a, that's an enormous problem. Um, one of the things we could do is to concentrate on, on the coming local government elections. Who's making the decisions around the council table? Are those voices that are already there being heard? That's a conversation that would be really useful to have and make a difference in the heart of local government. Local government, I think, needs a lot of fixing, but but that would be one way of of dealing with it. Having a conversation about Māori wards um, and not getting all screwed up uh, over letters to the editor about um, special things for Māori. um But I'm I'm watching what you do too, Karen, in terms of, at a very personal level, what you're doing with your own whānau, about bringing whānau together for whānau to feel that they connect with each other and to strengthen mm. that. I mean, that's a... Starting that, yes. That's a hugely yeah. important... Yeah, starting that. Um, I mean, we, we have my parents around the, t- around the kitchen table every Sunday morning, and we, our conversations, they're both 91. Conversations range over 91 years behind that, and we learn so much, and we bang on so much, and, and um, we... It, it, they're very special times for us, and I think going through, for the two of us, Karen and I and, and Mum and Dad, to go through those conversations um, in themselves are, are hugely critical. Yes, yeah, so just looking at the profile of my own whānau, you know, where we each are along that journey. My father's a born a Norwegian sea captain, and um, my English grandmother took me into her bedroom when I was nine years old and put the Bible in my hand and said, Karen, darling, I want you to promise you'll never marry a Norwegian. <laughs> well, I lived I'm up to Norwegian. that promise. She's not Norwegian. <laughs> <laughs> Grand will be happy, but um, how will she be knowing that um, I have a, a, a Basque nephew, a, a Brazilian nephew, um, a Ngāti nephew, uh, a South Island niece, I mean, Ngāti niece, um, she'd be spinning, really. <laughs> but she came out from England as an immigrant, um, married to this Māori uh, from the bottom end of the world. And, and you know, we grew up and eating our breakfast in the kitchen with a metre-by-metre metre picture of Winston Churchill on the, on the kitchen wall. Um, huge, huge things have happened. And so what choices do we make? Which side of the treaty? Uh, are we on? Does it matter, really? No. Um, but what matters are the conversations, I think, you know. And being, being gentle and generous and brave.
You're listening to RNZ and the third of a series of awkward conversations mounted in association with the Teha Trust as part of the Tuia 250 Kituranga event, marking the 250th anniversary of the first contact between Europeans and Māori. Here at Smash Palace in Gisborne with me, Alex Perrottet, are Dr Jill Crisp and Karen Johansson. I don't think we should be um, scared about confrontation. Um, I think for me through this time, it is a time for enormous reflection. But what do we reflect on? Do we reflect on what we've known forever or do we reflect on what we're hearing? What can we do in order to rebalance? And it's actually not just, as I said before, a deficit thing. What is it? What is it that Turanga, that Tairawhiti, that Aotearoa, that this place we live in, what can we do that is going to enable people to absolutely flourish in who they are? And so it, in or, if we've got that, um, if we want well-being to be our, our outcome, what are we all going to do to get there? And I think for some of us, we've got a bit more work to do than others. Um, it's going to be painful, um, but it has to happen. And, and I think the most important thing is that it doesn't stop once the ships go, you know? This is an opportunity for us to stop and say, what, what, and then go forward with that. The public opportunities to trigger are there. It's up to us now, though, to take those and take them to other places where we go, our workplaces, our, our home places, for us to take them back. Mm. I mean, Karen and I haven't talked to each other for three days because we were too scared about rehearsing for tonight, <laughs> for today. So we, but we've had this conversation ever since four months ago when Glennis asked us to be part of it. And I think it's been, or for me, enormously valuable mm. for her and I to continue, for our families. And I think that's the, that's the commitment we need to take, is just not have it as a headspace. Mm-hmm. Take it from this most incredible arts festival that's about to happen what does this mean to us? How do we react to that? Where, where do we take that reaction? And how does that impact on what we choose to do next? Yeah. And, and, and you're right, and I'm, I'm quoting again human rightsy stuff, but Eleanor Rose, Roosevelt, who was um, involved in the, in the writing of the, the first um, de- declaration, said human rights begins close, close to home. Yeah, yeah. That's, That's where right. it happens. That's right. Yeah. That fundamental respect for one another. Have you traversed anything new in those conversations you had up to three or four days ago? Was there something that you hadn't talked about for a long time or hadn't talked about before Mm. that that, that was difficult? You want us to tell you about that? (laughs) (laughs) If you're comfortable now, uh, comfortable enough talking about it. We come to situations from different positions sometimes. And I get ho-ha and I I get a bit stroppy. Karen's very kind and generous, and, and we negotiate that space a little bit, yes, definitely. And, and I think also the opportunity that it's given us even to be part of this conversation is to reflect a bit more deeply into the things that we do. I mean, we've got a business together. Um, we've got a consultancy, so we actually work in this space. We live in this space. Um, and I think for me, the, there's been real value in, in, in having this alive, to what I do and how I think. And actually, I have to acknowledge here in public that you speak the real much better than I do. <laughs> <laughs> she drives a school bus. She plays a guitar. She sings beautifully. I don't do any of that stuff. You know? 
Is she more Marty than I am? But that, <laughs> and I bang out that stereotype is rubbish. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Of course it is. Bring on ten guitars. Of course it is. Doesn't you know? Um, yeah, so that but the thing is, I like the crayfish heads and she likes the tails, yeah. which is just as well. If I'd married someone who likes the heads, yeah. we'd have a huge fight. Yeah. <laughs> when I was uh, g- growing up, um, I suppose I was about 12 when I f- first realised I'd won a school speech and, um, uh, and some people, some friends came up to me afterwards and said, oh... Um, so-and-so, who had come second when she had expected to come first, says, who does she think she is? Um, her mother's a Maori and her father's just a Norwegian. And I thought, huh? This is new. What does this mean to me? Um, and, and, and little things like that. Everybody's had, everybody's had these experiences, but what it told me was that knowledge is power and that I was going to get myself educated and I was going to get to university and I was going to have a career and nobody could touch me as a result of that. Um, what also happened along the way as a young woman is that I realised, well, I didn't have a word for it till I was about 22, that I was gay. And, and so that was what I had to keep quiet and that's what I had to... Another reason why I had to keep my public persona very carefully managed um, <clears throat> because for me uh, doing better than in than expectations was really important um, and I know I was told by a school teacher at that very 50th anniversary um, that when I was in 3B I was top of the class um, there was a long long discussion about whether or not I should go into 4A because I was Māori and I probably couldn't hack the pace. Same thing happened when, the, um, when the, uh, it was being discussed who was to be prefect for that year. Uh, could I really hack the pace? No. And so I hacked the pace because I knew I had to do that. And it's taken a while for me to, to come to grips with it. And, and this woman here has helped me uh, very much to, to have those conversations um, that are open and brave and, and honest, which I frankly haven't have been able to do most of my life. Actually, that, that raises that whole intersectionality ra- point is really important. Like, we're not homogenous. You know, all Māori aren't, all Māori, all Pākehā aren't, all Pākehā, but there are also multiple layers um, around our, our sexual orientation, of course, around disability, around what socioeconomic group we... You know, there's multiple things that are all part of who we are, um, and there's a complexity. I think we can't just say, well, there are two sides here. Um, there are multiple, and it's complex. Yeah. And it's, we have to understand what that complexity, how it plays itself out. Time now for audience questions in this edition of Awkward Conversations. Ming Foon. Karen, is there any advice that you can actually give to um, us and young people in terms of um, feeling inadequate or feeling that your identity wasn't strong enough to actually say, I am going to continue my speech in Māori to um, your gathering of the reunion? It's being brave, having confidence in, in the value of who you are. I'm, I'm no better or worse than anybody else, and I, I, I realise that, actually, because my parents 
modelled that, you know, and and my sisters and I believed in ourselves, um, but not every person has has the advantage of that. Um, so how we build resilience in our young people is a big question, I think, in our schools. The other another strand is that we were brought up with my my grandfather's bugles on the wall of my grandparents' house and his medals and his letter from the king thanking him for his five years of service. And he was wounded at Gallipoli, and that's what we were brought up on, and that was a huge pride for us. Um, and the significance of that was enormous because we knew he was brave and, and he, uh, he, he was a, a humble Christian man and he carried himself in spite of all sorts of adversities um, in a way that we knew he was comfortable with himself. Um, and so I thank my family for that. I, I acknowledge that. But not everybody has that opportunity. And teachers have an enormous influence. We've got another question there with Meredith. Uh, <laughs> firstly, I, I, I do just want to meet to my English teacher um, and, and I, saw, I kind of assign a little bit of blame. She was the first person that gave me a space to speak up. <laughs> when she asked me to stay behind one day in class, I was really scared and, and all this time she, was, she obviously saw something and gave me a job. So I was a challenge, obviously. <laughs> she hasn't Any stopped <laughs> speaking up since, ever since. Yeah. <laughs> now, I just want to ask as educators... Um, you know, we, we know that that's a key challenge to getting ignorance and um, no excuse. Uh, and, and I'm passionate about teachers. I believe teaching is a profession that, you know, is to be honoured and, and regarded as, as awesome. So as educators yourselves, how do we get into our curriculums and, and um, you know, can we do it now? We seem to get told it's on its way, it's going to happen. But we are now in a story narrative time of our own stories. When can we see the school curriculums pick up this? And from a primary, and you know, right through, um, can, can we get some action in that space? And can people like yourself uh, be part of pushing or pursuant into the ministry spaces um, that action to get not just civics, but the narratives, the stories of our local um, stories, so that there's no longer this excuse of ignorance or or fear. The curriculum framework absolutely allows for that. Um, what has to change is what's happening, I believe, in the colleges of education how teachers are being taught. Um, that's where it starts. You know, if you get a teacher who's ignorant and, and, and comes into the classroom, then so much damage can be done for seven generations. Um, and that's where it begins. And I don't think enough attention is being paid to that, frankly. I, I think stand back from that too, though, and you think, how does curriculum develop and who develops it? And if you look at sort of a community-led community input, whose voices in that community are listened to, which is why for me I work within a human rights framework that actually talks about um, those who are most vulnerable to, to human rights abuses. And I would say that not being reflected in your curriculum or being taught what's right that actually doesn't reflect who you are is an abuse. And so I think it's about looking at who determines... Yes, the curriculum framework exists, but who determines what fills that? Yeah. And, and what do we mean by a community-led? Who is community? And who are the voices in that that actually inspire and, and, and contribute? Mm. Mm. 
That's interesting, though, about who's teaching the teachers. Mm. Um, do we need do we need to look at universities and courses in education? I think so. Mm. I think so. Mm. Mm. And 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 that's where the community could come in and and work with student teachers, being really practical about it, um, and bringing in Komato Kuya to tell the stories and and this is how things it's are. Hugely value, uh, yeah. hugely um, powerful position, isn't it? Yeah. I didn't. I we didn't do that nearly enough at Girls High. Put my hand up to that right now. Yeah. I just want to say, and now I don't want to cry either. I just want to say thank you. Um, it's the first time I've ever heard a Pākehā talk about my story in a very honest way in front of, in front of people. You know, at Port Audi, we sit there and we tell a story and we tell each other every day the same stories. And um, there's two things I want to do. I want to acknowledge you for doing that, both of you, for giving each other support to do that. And um, I think I want to congratulate you both for um, being an inspiration to us to carry on. Carry on, you go, yeah, th we've had a lot of aha moments. And then some like, oh, moments. <laughs> 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 and uh, so thank you, thank you very much. The people like you both gave us the strength to pull that pants up and go get them, girl. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we're still learning. I'm not saying we know it all. But we just quietly keep moving amongst our people. And it is about, I know people say, well, you need to tell everyone else that. And I said, well, actually, I've got to tell my own. Yeah. Because that's a huge mm. job. Mm-hmm. Is a huge job, and before we battle with anyone else, you know, we've got to make sure, oh, okay, the ticker at the back, you know, make sure the back is clean and before you can go forward or sorted. So, thanks, thank you both. That was lovely to hear. I'd like to thank my guests, Dr. Jill Crisp and Karen Johansson. They've been talking with me today here in Gisborne about the need to have awkward conversations. Who are we? And how should we get on with each other 250 years after the first contact between Europeans and Māori? In the chair, I'm Alex Perrottet for RNZ.